Good morning. This morning is Palm Sunday, where we celebrate the entrance of Christ into Jerusalem in the week leading up to his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. As we read a few minutes ago, Jesus rode into the city that day on a donkey to the cries of, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One of the great mysteries is how the populace could, in less than a week's time, move from proclaiming the Messiahship of Jesus to shouts of crucify him. We don't know for certain if or how many of those same persons who were crying out Hosanna would later cry out crucify him. But what is certain is that the populace as a whole were caught up in the fervor, the animosity, and the murderous plot of the Jewish religious leaders within just a week's time. Few, if any, persons recognized that day as Jesus was entering Jerusalem in the midst of the joyous celebration, the great trials that lay before Christ that week. And yet with every inch that Jesus moved toward Jerusalem, with each palm branch that he passed, with each coat or cloak that the donkey stepped over, he was that much closer to the great agony of the cross and bearing the weight of mankind's sin. Jesus carried this great burden with him, not just that day leading into Jerusalem. He had carried it with him throughout his ministry. From the very onset of his ministry, Jesus knew the cross was the end goal. That it was necessary. That it was plan A from before the foundation of the world. This great weight, then, is why he speaks with such urgency throughout the Gospels. Well, he speaks with such urgency to his disciples from the very beginning of his ministry till the very end. That's why he cares so much about protecting his sheep, protecting his disciples from false teachers and false prophets. And it's why, as we return to our study on the Sermon on the Mount this morning, he is so concerned about ensuring that his disciples are protected from those who would pull them from the hard path that leads to the narrow gate of eternal life. Read along with me, if you will, and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Here we read, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Let's pray as we begin our study this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this morning, the celebration we call Palm Sunday as we think upon your triumphal and joyous entry into Jerusalem. And Father, while so many in that crowd, if any of them recognized that what lay at the end of the week was the cross, Father, we can call it truly a triumphal entry because we know the end story, that death could not keep you, that death itself, uh, victory was achieved over death this week so many years ago. Lord, as we turn our attention this morning to the study of your word and to the the study of this section on 
recognizing the fruit of false teachers, recognizing the warning and the seriousness with which Christ warned his disciples and his followers to be careful as they walk the narrow path. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? May we be quick to apply to our lives what is needed to to help protect us and help keep us on the narrow way. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, as we look at really what are very sobering verses this morning, it's important to remind ourselves of the context. These verses wrap up teaching Jesus began in verse 13 that was intended to ensure that his disciples would choose the hard path, the narrow path, or what is often called the narrow path, that leads to the narrow gate and the entrance into eternal life in the kingdom of God. Jesus' concern is that his disciples might be led astray or might choose the easy and comfortable broad way because of the false peace that is advertised or is offered and the temporary relief from the added struggle that is found in this world and in this life. As we were reminded last week, one of the greatest dangers in both keeping persons from the hard and narrow way and in drawing persons who are on it away from it are false teachers or false prophets. Last week, we saw Jesus begin by exhorting his disciples to be careful of these false teachers. These false teachers who wear the garb or the cloak of a shepherd, that is a sheepskin or a goatskin. In this case, describes them as wearing that sheep's clothing. Dressed in the garb of the shepherd, these false teachers work toward the destruction of the very sheep they should be protecting using the sheep as a means for gratifying and fulfilling their lust for money, wealth, acclaim, adoration. Jesus tells us repeatedly that we will know them by their fruits. That is, if we would pay attention to their deeds, we will be able to recognize these false teachers and prophets. Those Peter describes in 2 Peter 2.17-19 as those who are springs without water. Mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And so we come to this text that continues this topic and this subject of warning us to be wary and to be on guard against false teachers, against those who would lead us from the narrow way or the hard, the difficult way, whose end is the narrow gate of life. Now, in verse 21, Jesus takes us forward to that all-important day, the day of judgment. In helping us to recognize these false prophets, Jesus puts us in a scene, if you will, in the eschaton, in the last day, in the day of judgment. Just as we were reminded last week of the importance of having an eternal perspective with regard to the walk of this life and its difficulties, to remember the goal for which we strive, so now Jesus provides us with an eternal perspective with regard to these false teachers in helping us to be able to see and to understand and evaluate their fruit. Jesus invites us to look forward to the day of judgment and to recognize that a person's power and profession are not sufficient indicators of their faithfulness. 
You see, Jesus recognizes that in being told to evaluate spiritual leaders by their fruit, that many will make only half-hearted efforts in this evaluation. They'll be mesmerized by their miracles or mistake these for the fruit which Jesus told them to observe. And so what Jesus does in verses 21 through 23 is to provide the criterion for identifying the fruit he describes throughout verses 15 through 20. What is this fruit? There will be much fruit that looks appealing, but it will lack any spiritual or godly substance. I remember the first time I ate a white dragon fruit. A dragon fruit, is a, it's really a beautiful piece of fruit. It's vibrant in its colors and contrasts. It's somewhat stark, uh, stark in its appearance. And, and there are flavorful versions of dragon fruit, but the white dragon fruit can be almost entirely tasteless and watery. You're expecting a flavor and acidity, maybe a sweetness matching the stunning color and beauty of the fruit itself, but instead you bite into it only to be rewarded with a bland and watery texture. It was incredibly disappointing the first time I tried that. In the same way, Jesus knows we may be attracted to outward success or ministry of a person without substance. We may see charisma, growth, power, or influence and assume that this must be the type of fruit Jesus is describing. Much like Samuel, who when he arrived at Jesse's house to anoint Israel's king and was presented with Jesse's sons, kept thinking to himself, this must be the next king of Israel. Because of height, because of stature, or looks, only to be told over and over, this one I have rejected. Till finally, God tells Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so here in these verses, Jesus tells us that we must evaluate the fruit or life of a spiritual leader in an effort to understand the heart of the leader, the teacher, or the prophet. It's not enough to have outward manifestation of power and public profession of faith. It must be backed by faithfulness to the Father. So let's look closer at these verses so that we might rightly understand what Jesus is teaching so that we can accurately evaluate the type of fruit Jesus expects in the life of a spiritual teacher and leader. And I will add, by extension, what he expects of us as well. I don't want you to tune out or think that this only applies to the measure of a false teacher. No. While leaders and teachers in the church will incur a stricter judgment. There is not a separate set of instructions or a different type of obedience or a different will of the Father. Now Peter reminds all of us, speaking to all believers in 1 Peter, beginning in verse 15, he says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Then, quoting Leviticus 19.2, he says, Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the same for all believers. Every believer is to be holy as God is holy. Leaders and teachers in the church are to help set that example. And their qualification of a leader is contingent on their faithfulness to this standard. But it is not a different standard. And so as we hear these things, as we begin to evaluate the fruit of these leaders, we should rightly be asking, does this apply to my life as well? 
Can I see these fruits, this spiritual fruit, this godly fruit in my life as well? Turning our attention, beginning in verses 21, we note that Jesus starts by saying that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this phrase, Lord, Lord, in and of itself is very important. It's an important expression. And it's important because in each of its 14 uses in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this term is used with reference to Yahweh God. The disciples and persons gathered around Jesus that day on the mount would have immediately recognized this Old Testament reference. They would have recognized the theological claim Jesus was making in this statement. Jesus had clearly implied that he and God are one. The statement then of Lord, Lord is not just a simple plea or a cry. This is a salvation statement. Later in the New Testament, this is put before us clearly. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 12.3 we read, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, no one can truly say and believe that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And then in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now here we, as we look at this verse, verse 21, we need to be careful not to go beyond what Jesus is teaching. Note that it says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Meaning that there are some who say, Lord, Lord, who do in fact enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it is absolutely essential that persons confess Jesus as Lord. There is not a single person who will enter the kingdom of heaven who does not confess this. So the confession itself is good. It is right. It is necessary. All who enter the kingdom of heaven will confess this. The key distinction, the key that Jesus wants us to note is that not everyone who confesses this. Not everyone who utters this statement will enter. In other words, this confession, the words of them alone, are not a magical phrase. It is not an incantation such as open sesame that once uttered opens the gates of the kingdom of God. There is much more to it as Jesus highlights here in these verses. So, confession of Jesus as Lord, while being an essential component of salvation, is not by itself, this theological claim by itself, stated with fervor, is not enough to guarantee one's entrance into the kingdom of God. Remember, this is the narrow gate. Words and confessions are important and necessary, but they're not the totality. James says, faith without works is dead. And Jesus here is teaching the same thing. One must believe in God, and one who is truly believed will act upon it by doing the will of the Father. Now, before we look at the will of the Father, I want to note the expression, will enter the kingdom of God. Will enter, combined with the in that day from verse 22, highlights the future eschatological description of entering the kingdom of God. 
This is important. And it's important because it helps us to avoid interpreting all that has been said about the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount, all that will be said about the kingdom of God and the kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew and in the other Gospels, as current realities. Now, I want to stop there because there are, in fact, current experiences, current things that we as believers experience and realize because of that transfer of citizenship. But the kingdom as a whole is still future. There are important implications and effects on our lives once we are made citizens of God's kingdom in this life. But the fulfilled and realized experience of the kingdom is clearly future. What we have now is merely a foretaste of that glory divine. The kingdom that is described throughout the Sermon on the Mount is not found in this life or on this earth. Rather like a grandmother who is baking and hands the spoon to their grandchild to get a small taste of that meal to come, we get foreshadows of the blessings to come. And these foretastes help to enhance our appetite for the kingdom to come, to make us long and yearn for the kingdom to come. We notice in verse 21 the but here. And really this but is almost too strong in our English language. Because this isn't a pure contrast. Rather, it's a both and. Because the contrast here is not against confession of Jesus as Lord. It's against confession only. And so this but is really in addition to. In other words, a true confession will be seen by doing the will of the Father. Obedience to the Father demonstrates a person's true identity, that they are part of God's family. In other words, the confession is absolutely necessary, but the confession is necessary along with doing the will of the Father. And this obedience, this doing the will of the Father, demonstrates that my identity is as a child in the family of God. In Matthew 12, Jesus is teaching in a house and the crowds are surrounding him. They begin to press in as he's within the home and flooding out, out of the doors. And Jesus' mother and his brothers show up and wish to speak with him. And, and you know how it goes. There's a game of telephone that begins to work its way up until eventually Jesus gets the message that his mother and brothers are outside. And listen to what he says in verses 49 through 50. Stretching out his hand toward his disciples. He said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, the family of God is recognized by obedience to the will of the Father. So what does it mean to do the Father's will? Very simply, it means to obey His commands. Not to do what I think is good. Not to do what culture or society tell me is good. But to do what God tells me is good. But how do I know what those good things are? How do I know I am doing the will of the Father? One of the greatest reasons that I believe believers struggle to do the will of the Father is they don't take the time to try and understand what His will is. It takes effort. It takes time out of your day to do this. It takes diligence. We, do not, we don't study God's Word as we should. We read the Bible as a self-help book or for encouragement or to check off the read Scripture today to-do list. Instead, do you read the Bible seeking to know what God expects of you? Do you read God's word asking, how does my life need to change and be conformed? Do you read God's word asking, what does it reveal about my sinfulness, my selfishness, my pride, 
Do you actively read scripture or are you passive in that reading? Do you ask questions of the text as if you're sitting there in conversation with God? You see, he does not withhold his will from those who ask him. The problem is that we either don't ask or we don't like the answers. We don't like the answers because it requires us to lay aside our desires. It requires us to deal with sin in our life. This is part of what makes up the hard and the difficult way, being confronted with the reality of my sin. Many of us want to know the big picture will of God for our lives, but we're not willing to do what He has already instructed and commanded. How foolish of us to go to God asking for His will when He has already given us so much instruction that we have not yet faithfully put into practice. Like the child who wants to be entrusted with the keys to the car when they have not yet even learned to ride their bicycle without training wheels. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, longing to speak to them as mature believers and to impart to them greater insight into the will of God. But he's forced to deal with them as infants, not yet ready for solid food. This was in large part because they had not yet mastered even the basics of obedience. I wonder how many of us are like these Corinthians. Maybe not in every area, but in too many areas of our lives. Like those Israelites who gathered together in Shechem, still clinging to their idols that they had carried with them for decades, will we lay aside our pet sins, our selfish desires that we cling to, to serve God alone? Second reason we struggle to know and do the will of God is that we do not pray as we should. We are not sensitive to obedience and disobedience because we do not cultivate and prepare the ground of our lives through prayer. Just as the farmer or gardener must prepare the ground in order for the seed to sprout, we do not cultivate the soil of our lives with prayer so that the fruit of obedience might spring up from the word which is implanted. You want to know why you don't obey? It's likely that you don't pray as you should and do not study God's word as you should. I know for a fact we are all guilty of this, myself included. We let concerns, busyness, and business of this world choke out the time necessary for both cultivating the knowledge of God, the knowledge of His will, and practicing His will. Let us repent of our failure in this area, that we might faithfully do the will of the Father and enjoy the peace and assurance that comes from knowing we are on the road that leads to the narrow door. And it's when we deal with our sin. When we conform our lives to His standard, as we seek to do the will of God, as we seek to pursue righteousness, as we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, as we remove the log from our own eyes, it's then that we will be able to recognize the fruit we expect to see from spiritual leaders. And it's then that we will be able to discern and evaluate whether they are in fact producing that fruit. In verse 21, we see that the confession of Jesus as Lord is essential for entrance into the kingdom of God, but cannot exist apart from works. As Osborne notes, a claim is not enough if lives do not reflect that claim. One cannot say, Lord, Lord, which means master, master, and not do what he says. It is hypocritical and self-condemning. One who is a servant will obey his master. 
However, lest we misunderstand and think that words are unimportant and works are all that matter, Jesus here corrects this short-sightedness by noting that just as the highest and greatest confession will not guarantee one's entrance into the kingdom of God, neither will the most powerful and miraculous of deeds on this earth. In verse 22 we read, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Now Jesus is not here teaching a workspace righteousness any more than he is teaching a workless righteousness. Those who use this text to teach faith without works or works without faith have severely misunderstood the message and are ripping this passage out of its context. You see, Jesus is here warning his disciples and instructing us in rightly evaluating this spiritual fruit, this fruit of godliness. He's teaching us how to test the fruit, to find that which is truly evidence of faithfulness and belief. Notice that Jesus portrays these persons on that day. That day is a reference we've already seen to the day of judgment. Jesus explicitly refers to the day of judgment in Matthew 10 verses 15, Matthew 11 verses 22 and 24, and Matthew 12 verse 36. In fact, in Matthew 24, 36, that day refers to the time of the second coming. In the Old Testament, that day is used to refer to the day of Yahweh's wrath or vengeance. We read in Matthew 13, 49 through 50, So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That day refers to the end of the age. Notice here in verse 22, that these persons, these false teachers, these spiritual leaders, continue to cry out, Lord, Lord, on that day of judgment. Now, at this point, that Lord, Lord is not simply a statement of God's or Christ's deity. Now, at this point, it's moved from confessional to desperation. Because these are the persons who are standing on the edge of the abyss, about to be cast into eternal flames. And in their desperation, they cry out and plead their case. But in that day, it will not be enough because they did not do the will of the Father today. Notice that Jesus does not deny the veracity of their claim. He doesn't deny that they worked supernatural miracles. He does not deny that they perform works of power during their time on earth. However, as Blomberg reminds us, signs and wonders can come from sources other than God, including both the demonic world and human manufacture. One of the more humorous stories in Acts is found in Acts 19, 11-17. And, and you can go and turn there in your Bibles. There in Matthew 19... The Jewish exorcists are tried to perform demonic exorcism in Jesus' name after they observed the power of Paul and the apostles. These were accomplished and successful exorcists. This was their trade. They made a living off of this. They had to be successful to some extent. And look with me in Acts 19, verses 11 through 17, and see what happens. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that handkerchiefs 
or aprons, or even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempting attempted to name over those who had left, who had the evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, subdued all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to all both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. One of those examples of where Jesus will not allow himself to be mocked. You know, Josephus likewise the Jewish historian tells of exorcisms done by others. One by a, name, by a Jew named Eleazar in the presence of the Roman general Vespasian. Vespasian who eventually became emperor of Rome. Josephus writes that Eleazar drew the demon out of the man using a mystical ring and an incantation. After which the man was incapacitated. Then he commanded the demon to knock over a basin or cup of water that was nearby, that no one was around, in order to show Vespasian and the other spectators that the demon was in fact real and that it had left the man. And it did just that. Signs and wonders can be real, but by themselves they are and mean nothing. A sign or wonder does not in any way mean a person is a spokesperson for God, or even a true believer. The only true test is whether or not they do the expressed will of the Father. It's not how eloquent they are, how many Twitter followers they have, or whether they can perform signs and wonders. Jesus does not reject the claim that they worked miracles, but he does reject that they prophesied in his name, for he says, I never knew you. In a passage that's often considered a parallel passage, Luke 6.46, Jesus asks, Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, tried to worship God in their own way, and God struck them dead. Uzzah reached his hand out to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling to the ground. His motives and intentions were good, but they were in disobedience to God's command, so God struck him dead. Good intentions are never a substitute for obedience to God and doing the expressed will of the Father. Moses, out of frustration, struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And that small act, or what seemingly small act of disobedience, trying to serve God his own way, resulted in being kept from stepping foot on the promised land. How much more will lives lived in disobedience be kept from the eternal promised land? That narrow gate that leads to the eternal life in the kingdom? It's so easy to become enthralled with persons and personalities, especially persons who seem to have the power of God behind them. But never let these acts distract you from evaluating whether or not they do the expressed will of the Father. 
Miracles, signs, wonders, and prosperity are no indication that God is either behind or blessing a particular person or ministry. Only those who do the will of the Father are worthy of being followed as they imitate Christ. Likewise, for us, the instruction is clear. We should not be eager about outwardly performing great signs and wonders. We shouldn't be distracted with trying to do these things, but instead, our focus should be upon faithful, daily obedience to the Father. This returns us to the importance of studying Scripture so that we might know the mind of God, so we might know His holy standard and His instruction for our lives, and that in our knowing, we would then apply it to our lives. Constantly cultivating lives that will produce fruit in keeping with obedience through prayer. The scene shifts in verse 23. Verses 21 and 22 have been focused upon those on the day of judgment, standing at the door, pleading their case in a desperate attempt to avoid the great wrath that awaits them for their sin. Now the camera pans over to the judge. And the one who fills the scene is Christ himself. Note here that the one seated passing judgment is Christ. He is here the judge, the one granting or refusing entrance into the kingdom of God. We see now why Jesus says, I am the door in John 10, 9, and why we have the metaphor of a narrow gate here in Matthew 7. These metaphors provide a picture of Jesus allowing and refusing entrance into the kingdom of God as judge on that day. And here, in the judgment that is past, we see the true nature of those who do not enter the kingdom of heaven. Though they are making claims that they prophesied, cast out demons, and work miracles in his name, in the name of Jesus, these persons are characterized as working lawlessness. You see, they're not being condemned only because they did not do the will of the Father, but also because they are working Lawlessness. These are not innocent bystanders. These are active lawbreakers. Their desperate pleading for mercy in verse 22 may cause us to momentarily forget this reality. The reality that these are spiritual criminals guilty and condemned. But before we think too harshly toward them, we should remember that every single person who does not confess Jesus as Lord, and then demonstrate the faithfulness of that confession through doing the will of the Father as at war with God. Every act of sin is an act of rebellion. Every evil thought is a treasonous plot against the creator of this world. There are no innocent persons. Every one of us, born of the seed of Adam, is born with this sin nature intent on making ourselves Lord instead of God. The reality that God has saved us and rescued us from the wrath to come should create a new desperation. One that longs to see others rescued from the fate of these false prophets and teachers. To see persons transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. This scene here in verse 23 is cast in the future. It's in the future to come. It's in that day, that day of judgment. And on that day, it will be too late. None who wait for that day will be spared the wrath of God. So the call is for any who have not confessed Jesus as Lord to do this 
now while it is still today and not wait for that day. As one commentator noted, verses 21 through 23 are a dreadful warning. The most orthodox avowals of faith have no value in the eyes of God if they are not translated into concrete obedience of his will. One may with his lips loudly profess his faith in God and even invoke Jesus as Lord and yet deny him by thoughts, words, and acts. So let us renew our commitment this morning to knowing God, to obeying Him, that we might avoid this self-delusion and might rest in the peace and the security that comes from knowing we are children of God. Returning to the context and the primary thrust of Jesus' message here in verses 21 through 23, disciples of Jesus Christ must be ever diligent in not only seeing fruit, but evaluating the type of fruit that is produced in the lives of spiritual leaders. We are to evaluate prophets and preachers by their obedience and not by their spiritual gifts or the size of their ministry. It's important to note that Jesus is not anti-miracle, he's not anti-healing any more than he is anti-prophecy or anti-preaching. But Jesus is stressing that the actions and the behavior and the godly fruit in the life of a person because of their obedience are of more importance than showy displays. See, what matters is not acts of power, but the fruit of the Spirit. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, 2. There we read, If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. A Greek named Antisthenes once stated that states will perish once they prove incapable of discerning good and bad people. While the church universal will never perish, it is possible that like the local churches in Revelation, if we prove incapable of discerning good and bad leaders, then we may one day find our lampstand snuffed out. May we be faithful and diligent disciples of Jesus Christ who carefully and with an eye toward our own spiritual poverty and the great mercy we have experienced be careful to evaluate the fruit of our own lives and the lives of those who lead the church so that we might stay on the difficult path that leads to the narrow gate of life and on that day hear those precious words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Amen.